about 85% of projects that use AI fail. Just think about that for a moment. I've never come across any other area of human activity where we accept such a high rate of failure, 85%. Not only do we not walk away from that, we go, yeah, let's spend more money on this thing, right? That is really wild. And so if you unpick how things go wrong, a big part of it is design, that sort of old cliche, where the tech company and the purchaser, which is could be a company or could be a government agency, they're speaking two languages, even though they're all speaking English. That's a real problem. And so that's how design processes can go off the rails really quickly. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hi, Edward Santo. Welcome to The Foil. You're the Industry Professor for Responsible Technology at the University of Technology in Sydney. And you're leading this new initiative to build Australia's capability on ethical artificial intelligence. Start us off by letting us know how you came into this role. What's your personal story? Well, it's great to be joining you, Christy. I am not a tech person by training. I'm a lawyer. It's good to out myself early on that. And my background is in human rights. So I've just finished a five-year term as Australia's Human Rights Commissioner. But before that, I was a humble human rights lawyer. And I just started noticing over a number of years the number of clients that we were uh, receiving at the community legal center where I worked, who had human rights problems that were connected either directly or indirectly to new technology. And it was a kind of a wave that started to break over uh, over a couple of years. Probably the first big example of this was something that was kind of really old technology. (laughs) So we had an large number of clients were young people who had been kind of accused of various, usually pretty minor crimes. And when that happens, you are kind of given bail, the child is given bail, and they go off and live their normal lives, go to school and so on, while they're awaiting going to court. And what we kept on finding was that those kids would come into contact with the police. The police had this little computer system, um, usually in the squad car, And the computer system would say, hey, this kid is in breach of bail. And the information was wrong. There was this problem with the computer system that kept on throwing up these inaccuracies so that the kid would get arrested. They could sometimes be detained, even in the police station with other adults, and sometimes overnight. And it could literally be the worst experience of their life, that that kind of sliding doors moment where they could have gone left, they could have gone right. And they ended up kind of, you know, having this terribly traumatic experience. It was completely unjust. So, so there were a number of situations like this. We could see how new technology can be used for the good, but we could also see how it can actually, um, often without any intended kind of ill, um, it can actually really have a terrible effect. That is a chilling example. So these are the in the early days of, you know, the use of data-driven tools to inform policing. And so what's happened since then? You went into the Human Rights Commission as the Human Rights Commissioner on to focus on responsible technology and to explore this. What have you seen occur in the last couple of years? When I started as Human Rights Commissioner, 
lot of <laughs> different areas of responsibility, including refugees, LGBTI, human rights issues, and so on. But you're right, human rights and tech was one that I was particularly interested in from day one. And usually, when you see a community attitude change on something, it's it's a very much a gradual thing. <laughs> um, you can't point it to one particular moment, but that's not the case here. There was a particular moment. It was the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, with Facebook. That moment changed people's attitudes. It was like a um, kind of this 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 crucial just day almost where people who had previously been very unconcerned about new tech, if anything, they might have been worried about sort of fairly minor privacy issues where, you know, you're looking for a new dining room table online and when that unhappy task of Googling is over, you then get kind of tables marketed at you for every website you go to for the next couple of weeks. It's annoying. It's a privacy issue. But frankly... It is about as small a human rights issue as anyone could ever imagine. And so it didn't change behavior. Cambridge Analytica changed all that. People started to go, oh my gosh, I can be manipulated. My personal information can be used against me. And so that moment has really started, I think, a, a very significant journey on the part of our community to kind of reconceive what their relationship is with new technology like artificial intelligence. And are you talking about Cambridge Analytica in the context of Facebook or are you talking about it in the context of the elections and campaigning? Can you break that down for us? Everything. So just a reminder, of course, what, what Cambridge Analytica involved was uh, manipulation, first in the United States and then primarily in the UK, of how people interacting with their own Facebook kind of accounts and, and the feed that they get um, through Facebook manipulated how the news that they received, you know, the truth or otherwise of the sort of state of the world that they were seeing. And it really, you know, affected first the um, Trump presidential election when he was elected, and it also um, had a significant effect on the Brexit vote. And uh, what, what, what we saw, I think, there was the way in which um, personal information can be, can be manipulated. Um, and um, I think what, uh, there, were, there was some kind of um, fork in the road there as well, where people thought, well, is this a one-off? Is this just one example of a company connected to Facebook doing this? Or is this part of a broader phenomenon. And I think the, um, the sad truth is it is part of a broader phenomenon. And, and I don't want to suggest for a, a moment that, you know, our technology can only cause harm. That's not true. Um, but, but it is true that there are um, real risks. It's not just one company. It's not just Facebook. It's, it's, it's a much bigger thing. I think we've had a lot recent months about ways in which people are exposed to ideas and content. There's a perception that that's problematic in certain contexts. And you say that the issue with Cambridge Analytica was that people's personal information was being manipulated or that they were being manipulated by use of that personal information. Can you be more explicit about you know, exactly what that mechanism looks like when you say they're being manipulated? How are they being manipulated? So there are a number of examples, and this is the kind of dark arts, right? Let's say you're someone who leans progressive in your political views. And I don't want to make too many kind of assumptions here, but that probably means you'll go to news sources like The Guardian, right? So what that means is you're particularly trusting of, let's say, The Guardian as a news source. 
what that in turn means that if someone were to fake a, a news story and make it appear like it comes from the Guardian, that's something that you're much more likely to believe. And that's what we started to see. So if someone who wants to kind of manipulate your worldview knows enough about you, and there's not that, there aren't that many data points that they need to know, but, but things like your general ideological worldview, then what they can do is target you with information that is packaged in a way that makes it much more likely that you will consider it to be something that is kind of friendly. And that in turn has a very powerful effect on how you see the world. So as distinct from just the issue of like bold-faced fraud then is that it's targeting people who are particularly available to messaging from The Guardian. Where does the boundary lie then in between the fraud itself as the problem and the targeting of people with that information? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So it's, <laughs> I remember as a junior lawyer, there was this kind of, it's almost a truism. You, you kind of look around a big crowded um, street and there would be lots of people there, like a disturbing number of people there who are pretty unhappy, pretty angry and might actually want to harm other people. There are a couple of reasons that they don't. But one of the big reasons is that they just don't have a gun or a knife, right? I, I realize what I'm saying is pretty dark. What we're seeing is that there are now far more of these sorts of tools available, the kind of virtual equivalent of a knife or a gun if what you're trying to do is manipulate our democracy in a, in a really negative way. I think we're going to deep dive into that a little later. But first, before we do, could you explain to us what is responsible tech? When we talk about responsible technology, we, we acknowledge there's a $3 term for this, that, that technology is dual affordance. I acknowledge also that lots of technology is dual affordance, including old technology. So a knife is dual affordance. It means it can be used to slice uh, a loaf of bread. It can also use, be used to stab someone. But the thing about new tech is that that is kind of on steroids. And so what, what that in turn means is that we need to take some steps to ensure that as much as possible, um, new technology is, um, is benign or at least innocuous. And so the, the, that, that involves usually three key things. Um, one is uh, the law. Two is how we train people to use the technology and, and um, how, how they receive it. And the third one is how we design the technology. And so responsible tech really tries to get um, at all three of uh, those kind of vectors of influence. When you talk about, you know, the first vector, the law, you, you're talking about privacy law, security law, you're speaking about legislation that enables data sharing safely, AI ethics, etc. When you talk about how people are trained to use the technology in this context, I suspect you're talking about data capability and literacy. Is there something that I'm missing in, in those two? No, I think that's right. One of the difficulties with the law, um, and I think a real mistake that we've made, is it's often said, and, and this, this bit is true, right, that it's very difficult to chase technological innovation using law because our parliaments tend to be quite slow to legislate, and that's often the strength, whereas technological development, particularly right now, is happening very quickly. And so if we try and legislate by reference to technology, generally that's a disaster. We can never keep up. But <laughs> I would say 99 times out of 100, we don't need to do that. 
What we need to do is legislate by reference to the outcome. So, so let me give a practical example of this, right? Let's say you're, you're um, kind of setting a law about how banks um, give home loans. Um, what, what you can say is you have to make that home loan um, in a way that is fair, that is accurate, that's not discriminatory, and that is accountable. Now, none of that has anything to do with technology because what that then in turn means is you, the bank, can choose any technological means. You can use an abacus, you know, like they used thousands of years ago, or you can use the most sophisticated form of deep neural net. doesn't matter. That's your choice as long as you make sure that your system is fair, accurate, accountable, and non-discriminatory. And so that's really, really crucial. So the problem that we've had with regulation in the last couple of decades, I don't think has been a problem of lack of up-to-date law. It's a problem of enforcement. And so the, the existing law, which, which on the whole is technologically neutral, which says, you know, you've got to be fair, accurate, accountable, right? Um, that has not been enforced rigorously enough when it comes to the use um, and development of new technology. Is there any difference in your view into the applicability of the law so described to the private sector as opposed to the public sector? Or do you see that these two sectors really open to the same criticisms and should be subject to the same restrictions? The community expectations and the law are a little bit different in terms of government decision-making and decision-making by companies. Um, so generally, the government is held to a higher standard um, than, than private sector companies are. Um, but that's not always the case. Um, and there's, not, there's probably less difference than kind of people um, come to think. I mean, ultimately, if you're a citizen, all you really care about is that you're treated by fairly um, by, you know, whether it's a government or a company. In other words, if you're, if you're discriminated against, it doesn't make you feel much better to know that it was a company that discriminated against you rather than um, the government. I found the banking example that you just gave really interesting from that point of view, given that banks are afforded very special powers um, under our system to lend money. Um, that you know ordinary citizens wouldn't have, and so there's probably an argument for uh, for needing to apply greater scrutiny to how it is that they make those products available to to citizens. On to talk about the Australian Human Rights Commission's uh, Human Rights and Technology Report, which uh, you published last year, which had a number of really sort of impactful and really interesting recommendations. I wonder if you'd perhaps take a moment to introduce that piece of work and um, and what some of the sort of really important recommendations were that you made in that report. Yeah, it was, it was a mammoth piece of work. It turned out that we ended up doing, um, I think, the biggest public consultation anywhere in the world on the human rights implications of AI. And um, what, what we found, um, this part was not surprising, I'll get to the surprising bit in a moment, what we found is that there are some good things and some bad things, right? That's true of a lot of stuff. Um, so Australians weren't fearful of technology per se, um, what they were saying to us was, we want new technology um, to kind of imbue the values that we have as a country. Um, and so that means um, that it should be, it should work, right? It should be accurate. Um, too often it's not. Um, and that, uh, you know, that it should be accountable, that it should be um, developed and used in a way that is respectful of our human rights. And so um, what, we, what we set out in that report um, was basically our template, our roadmap for how to achieve that outcome. And so that meant um, starting with a, a, a really big question, which is 
um, what should be our national strategy when it comes to AI and, and new tech. Um, and then we moved on to looking um, at those three kind of categories of influence that I referred to before, um, law, um, skills, uh, and, um, and also design of new tech. And um, we, we set out uh, ways of, of, of improving the way in which people's human rights can be upheld um, across those three domains. So since you launched that report, the Australian Data Strategy has been released. It was released last December and it outlines significant investments in data and AI. Uh, and the strategy aims to set those guardrails for the new tech and AI economy by ensuring you know, that we have robust security, privacy, and giving Australians better visibility and a control of their data. It aims to try to give people agency. Well, that's what it outlines. To what degree do you believe the Australian data strategy and the AI strategies that are being implemented around the states in New South Wales as well have adopted or actioning the recommendations in your report? I would commend that work. And there's a but coming. <laughs> it's necessary, but not sufficient. So one of the really interesting things, and this was something that was surprising that we, we got from our consultation process, was that transparency is only a very small part of what people want. I mean, essentially, people said to us over and over again, it's all very well for um, us to be able to see how governments and companies are doing us harm. That's, that doesn't make me feel much better, right? Um, so transparency without the capacity to ensure that, you know, governments and, and companies are doing the right thing is not very helpful, right? Um, and agency, which is which is a crucial word that you mentioned a moment ago, Christy, is, is really important because that can be quite double-edged as well. So if, if essentially um, what... Uh, company or a government agency does is it says, well, look, we're going to tell you what we're doing. We're going, to, we're going to publish thousands and thousands of pages worth of information in our algorithm, I kind of think. And if you scrutinize it really carefully, then you'll be able to make some um, kind of very, um, you know, impactful decisions on your own life about how you interact with this company or this this agency. Um, but that's that's pretty illusory, right? And and what people were saying to us is we don't want to be constantly in this kind of battleground where the company there's a company that um, that is basically trying to exploit us to the absolute max. And if we are super vigilant, if we kind of quit our jobs and focus entirely on protecting ourselves, maybe, 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 maybe um, that as David will be able to kind of keep Goliath at bay a bit. I mean, that's just not how it should work. Um, and in fact, it was a really important lesson that I think um, we learned from consumer law, as sick from human rights law, about 40 or 50 years ago. So, so the lesson I'm learning to there is that, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, before the rise of, of one consumer law, if you were, let's say, buying a new car, you'd go to the car dealership um, and you'd be presented with this incredibly long um, contract all written in legalese and very, very small font. And you'd be told, look, you just sign it and that's that. And the, and the contract would be outrageous. It would say things like, well, look, you know, if the car blows up on the way um, home from the dealership, you know, that's, that's your problem. Um, and ultimately what um, governments, not just in Australia, but around the world said was, no, <laughs> you can't contract out of basic obligations. This isn't, transparency alone is not enough. 
It's also got to get to, and this is, I think, more fundamental than transparency. It's also got to get to the, 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 the fundamental basic obligations that governments and um, companies have to do the right thing by citizens or consumers. It seems like there's an implied broader scope for what we might mean by the right thing. The car dealership, again, is a great example where if the contract says that, you know, the car could blow up on your way home and, and you, you, can't, you can't return to them and, and claim damages, that that's, you know, in violation of, of certain fundamental things that our law might say about who is responsible for this and for that and so forth. And it seems like when we're talking about doing the right thing as regards consumers and users of technology, that there's more to that and that it might have to do with some of the uh, manipulation that you mentioned earlier uh, in connection with Cambridge Analytica. I wonder if you've got any further thoughts you want to sort of expand on on what those sort of additional sort of scope might look like. I mean, it, I, I feel really torn about this because on the whole, I actually think if we just enforced our existing law, 80% roughly of our problems would go away, right? But you're right. There are, there are some new threats um, and that kind of manipulation um, we're seeing through deep fakes, Cambridge Analytica type situation, and so on. That that is genuinely novel, um, and that's driven by new technology. And so, so we need to do both. Uh, we need simultaneously to kind of enforce our existing law more effectively, um, and not constantly try and dream up kind of new ways to address problems that are actually totally solvable if we. If we just, you know, relied on things that are tried and true, but on the other hand, um, have a, a really good taxonomy that allows us also to say, hold on, this this particular thing that is novel, and our law doesn't do a very good job and can't do a very good job of um, of regulating. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that folks don't have the time of day, you know, to be to be spending all of their time trying to defend their their front door from misuse of their information. And so, uh, you know, where there might be turnkey options available to us in some respects to address that, that would be that would be great. In particular, one of the recommendations from the Human Rights and Technology Report was that there should be an introduction of legislation to require that a human rights impact assessment be undertaken before any department or agency's use of AI-informed decision-making systems would be used to make administrative decisions. Which sounds like a, a really great idea. You know, if you've got a government agency, they're planning to use AI to do something that people out there in the world might have a question about, that there be uh, a mechanism to require there be an assessment at the very least. You know, robo-debt comes to mind and uh, a potential avoided scandal there. Is this already happening in Australia? And if not, how does this work in practice? Just started to happen a little bit. Um, so New South Wales, the New South Wales government has published the first ever AI assurance framework, which is kind of like a guidance document for um, state government agencies uh, in how they, um, you know, basically develop and use AI. Um, but it's not happening enough. And I reckon the example you gave, Adam, of RoboDead is a really important one. We need to learn those lessons a bit better. Um, and perhaps we need to be a bit blunt about what went wrong there. Um, so I wonder if I can just very quickly kind of expand on what I mean there. Um, so what we had with RoboNet was a genuine problem, a problem that literally generations of um, minister uh, and, and senior government officials had acknowledged um, that and 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 had had been able to solve, and that was that the social welfare um, system is imperfect. <laughs> that some people receive more money um, than they're legally entitled to, 
Um, and if you add up all of those people, it may well um, amount to hundreds of millions of dollars over a period of time. But there's a really good reason why that problem hadn't been solved up until now. And that was that um, those sums of money individually are relatively small. So using a conventional mechanism to recover that money is just disproportionate. So you may recover less than you spend on actually trying to get the money back. Um, but also there's injustice um, involved as well. If you you know wait years to recover you know a small sum of money from an individual who might be incredibly vulnerable and we're receiving social welfare, right? So um, there's, there's there's that sort of individual kind of fairness issue as well. And so what happened, that, that was the context in which, you know, some technology executives whispered in the ear of some senior government officials saying, hey, you know what, we've got this magic solution. And I think that's, that's almost literally how they heard it. Um, this is a piece of magic that would allow, you know, almost instantaneously that money to come rushing back into the government coffers. And so um, what we ended up seeing was this system where a, a procurement took place for, for a tool, um, but, but the procurement um, didn't lead to a tool that was fit for purpose. And then uh, the, the federal government in deploying that tool was unable to kind of, um, you know, really perceive and act on some of the problems that were starting to kind of become apparent quite quickly. And because there was a, a, a kind of a, a very powerful system of automation that was deployed, that problem got big on us really quickly. And so I guess what I'm saying um, is if we had a human rights impact assessment process in place, it would increase or improve the quality of uh, the kind of initial assessment about, you know, whether we go down this particular route, you know, get, get a tool. And then if, if the answer is yes, let's lean into AI for this particular task, it should also bring to the fore some very important questions that need to be kind of asked and answered in the procurement process and then in the implementation and oversight process. Ed, thank you for unpacking that. This is really interesting. It goes back to your third tenet of responsible tech, doesn't it? It goes back to how we design the tech. To recap, there's the law, there's how people are trained to use the tech and how we design the tech. Is that what you're meaning? You know, in the design, we want to make sure that we have the impact assessment for human rights included. And what are the other components of how we design the tech in the context of responsible technology? I'm going to start with a dirty secret from AI. And this, when I came across this research, I really looked quite more deeply about it because it was truly shocking. That is that about 85% of projects that use AI fail. Just think about that for a moment. I've never come across any other area of human activity where we accept such a high rate of failure, 85%. Not only do we not walk away from that, we go, yeah, let's spend more money on this thing, right? Um, that, is, that is really wild. And so if you unpick how things go wrong, a big part of it is design. And so uh, if, um, you know, it's that, that sort of old cliche where the, the tech company and the, which is the vendor and the purchaser, which is, could be a company or could be um, a government agency, they're um, speaking two languages, even though they're all speaking English based in Australia. And that's a, that's a real problem. And so that's how design processes can go off the rails really quickly. 
Um, but but another big part of that, Christy, I think, is is the training involved, and, and I think it's intimately linked. Um, so we in Australia, unlike a lot of countries, have acknowledged a significant AI skills gap, um, and we look at that from a very technical perspective. In other words, but by, by that, um, the government tends to mean we're not producing enough people who have you know PhDs in data science or, or other rel- relevant st- STEM um, kind of backgrounds. And that's a genuine problem. I'm really glad that lots of people are working on it. But there's also another part of that AI skills gap that has received not nearly enough attention. It's a big focus of my work at UTS. And that is what we're calling an AI strategy gap. So if you go back to that kind of story of RoboDebt, where you have whispering in the ear of the senior government officials, the tech companies, if they don't know enough about the thing that they're um, looking at purchasing and deploying, then they will think of it as magic. And so they will be unable to do a competent, effective procurement integration process. And so that that basic training, not to try and turn everyone into a PhD level data scientist, but enough so that you can set a good kind of you know, objective in how you use uh, AI and new tech, and then um, to 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 uh, be able to kind of, as I say, procure, develop, implement it safely and effectively. That's crucial for us in being able to get past a level where we've got an incredibly high rate of failure, which can cause harm, injustice, human rights violations, to something that is much, much better. I can certainly see what you're saying there because when implementing and designing data or AI solutions or applications, there are many people that need to be at the table. There are people who are have courage and leadership for the application who have to understand the uh, the implications and, and the design. And then, of course, there are translators and there are people who for whom the AI is going to be implemented for benefit of, hopefully. And that's everyday people or that could be employees or, or whomever the consumers are of the, of the ultimate solution, as well as, you know, a range of other capabilities and people that are at the table, including data scientists and bilinguals and domain experts, et cetera, et cetera. So do you think this is really the capability gap, skills gap thing that you're talking about, that we have to skill up everybody who is working on data and AI solutions in the domain in a number of capabilities? I think so, but it starts with a really important question about where we're at with new technology. So um, Klaus Schwab and Nick Davis um, wrote this book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, that, that, that you know, their thesis is essentially that um, we are living in truly revolutionary times, that, that technology, um, particularly AI and automation, is kind of completely changing the way we live in at least potentially every conceivable area. And that's not just kind of prognostication about the future. That's the reality that we're already starting to live through. If, if they're right, and I think that they are, then what flows from that is that we need to kind of skill up our citizenry. Um, and I, I to get maybe to give another um, analogy, um, again, I'll give another analogy from the car world. I'm not sure why I'm doing that because I'm not such a car buff myself. But... Um, these days, right? If you were um, just a, an ordinary person um, and you never planned to learn how to drive a car, you would still need to learn a few things about cars. We, we teach our children well before they're old enough to drive a car a whole bunch of things about cars, you know, not least that if the car hits you as a human, you're going to be 
much worse effective than the car, right? So that everyone needs to know that basic stuff. If you're going to drive a car, you, you need to know a bit more. You're not going to um, need to know how to take apart a car and build it up again. But if you if you want to be a mechanic, you will know that. And then there's a further higher level of sophistication if you're trying to design a new car from scratch. So that that kind of gradation is really important in something that is ubiquitous as automobiles. Um, what we're saying is that AI is on a trajectory towards being similarly or perhaps even more ubiquitous. Uh, and if that's the case, then we can't all walk around with a kind of a, a, a terrible level of ignorance and just say, well, look, there are some very clever people who seem you know, to wear very thick glasses and we can rely on them. Because to, to your point, Christy, um, that, that process of translation, I think was the word you used, um, is crucially important. Um, if we can't kind of translate, uh, you know, an objective um, like you know, let's recover safely, fairly, um, the money that you know is leaking out of the welfare system to a tool that that, that achieves that, um, then there's enormous injustice and harm. And frankly, even if that's not your worldview. If you look at the economic costs of robo-debt, you know, well over $1.7 billion, um, we, we can't, you know, as a country afford just to kind of throw that sort of money away. A big issue that is emerging now is this idea of data democratisation, so access to data. But conversely, you know, when data is more accessible, then there's the next part, which is who gets to ask the questions, question equity. Who actually gets to ask what questions matter that are going to be answered with AI? So it really means um, that the private sector in the design, back to your responsible tech framework, as well as governments do need to involve the citizenry in these questions. Can you comment on this and how do you see this evolving? It's quite a complex issue, this, this question of data equity and, and question equity. And perhaps I can kind of come at it from the angle of, of some work that I'm doing right now on facial recognition technology. So one of the interesting things about facial recognition is that it is um, becoming more accurate, but not in an even way. So um, it is increasingly impressive when facial recognition is used on people who look like me, middle-aged Caucasian men. But if you happen not to meet that description, um, particularly if you happen to have dark skin, it is still very significantly inaccurate. So how do you fix that? Well, the simplest way to fix that is um, through kind of more representative training data. So one of the main reasons why facial recognition technology tends to be more accurate on people with light skin than dark skin is that it's trained on, you know, literally millions and millions of uh, headshot photographs um, and th the vast majority of those are people with light skin. And so you could say, okay, well, let's get more um, photos of, of people with dark skin in that training data. That's how machine learning works, right? Um, but what we're seeing, um, particularly from the US, is um, African-American communities going, why would we agree to this? Why would we help you with this? I mean, particularly if um, what we experience facial recognition technology doing is policing our communities at a disproportionate rate with high levels of injustice, why on earth would we help you do that more, right? 
And I think that's a really fundamental question, and it's a prior question, right? It's um, it, it, in one sense, it has much less to do with technology than it does to 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 do with how we, as a liberal democracy, um, want to kind of prioritize uh, how we we treat different parts of the community. And so, I think th- that's really where I guess there's an important intersection between technology on the one hand. Um, and politics on the other, um, and that that politics, um, which we we sometimes kind of like to um, fool ourselves, is completely dissociated from technology. That's just not true, right? And so we we do need to confront that. I think um, head on. Again, I want to try to tease apart some of the differences, perhaps, between where this is a technology that could be applied in the course of delivering a service, let's say, which you may actually not really have any option to opt out of. For example, if this is a government service, if this is a part of some sort of mass surveillance program, or God forbid the repeat of the robo-debt fiasco, you might be discriminated against in a way that you could you didn't have the option to avoid. Whereas, you know, if we're talking about a, a private sector organization deploying an AI algorithm to automate um, their processes or enrich their decision-making, let's not say necessarily even to uh, do away with their own internal decision-making, but enrich it. And, uh, you know, there are communities out there who don't want to participate, don't want to necessarily provide their data that would enhance the service and allow that uh, that algorithm, that AI to become more accurate in making predictions about them or in understanding their particular circumstance to just, you know, draw a naive question from that. What's, what's the issue, I suppose, in the private sector? If your AI is not accurate, but the people who would be served by that AI aren't interested, where does that go? Where's the tension? It's true as a general proposition that companies you can shop elsewhere, but for government you can't. But in reality, as AI becomes more ubiquitous, you kind of end up with this kind of illusory choice, right? Like so all of the major banks in Australia are using algorithms to make home loan decisions um, and the algorithms are all pretty similar. And so it's it, it's not to the point to be able to say, oh, well, I'm leaving bank A because I'm going to go to bank B because they may well be very, very much you know, on a path. And so... Ultimately, I think we do need to confront what that um, underlying technology is, what are the kind of protections that are put in place and what the impact is, particularly on vulnerable parts of our community. The the next question that I had about it was sort of downstream, if you like, of the tech where you're pointing out quite rightly that the AIs are not as accurate or have a variation in accuracy across different subsets of a population. And it occurs to me that that will always be the case. No AI is going to be perfectly accurate across any stratification of a population that you choose to draw ever. And so do we need to give thought to when it would be that we would declare that the AI is in fact good enough, as it were? Yeah, I'm not sure about that, Adam. I mean, it's certainly true that a lot of decision-making, there are demographic differences. The kind of rule of thumb, I guess, is that if you are choosing a new technology to make a decision, it can't be less accurate, particularly, you know, in a discriminatory way than uh, the kind of state of the art previously. And so that 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 is a kind of a, a bit of a useful starting point, but it really, it really depends on the specific um, use context. Back to this question of equity, I think what I hear a lot with the people we work with and who are supporting vulnerable people on the ground in our communities whether they're not-for-profits or, you know, governments, equitable access to data that might be 
held, for example, by private organisations such as banks. And the EU has recently released the Data Act, which provides data spaces for sharing of data between government agencies and private industry, such as financial services, as well as civil society, to use that data in collaboration for public benefit. Do you see that evolving here in Australia, Ed? Look, I hope so. I mean, I think that that European um, law proposal, and I, I don't think it's yet come into force, has a lot to be said for it. And uh, I guess one of the things that we we worry about is, um, you know, we talk about big data a lot, right? Like we're training a, an important decision-making system on a really big data set. The problem is that often those sets are not very big. And so they can be, um, they can go off course very quickly. Uh, and so uh, if you have um, kind of some readily accessible data sets, uh, that have been kind of carefully checked um, to make sure that they are generally, you know, pretty good, um, then that's less likely to um, to be a problem in practice. Um, can, can I maybe give a, an example of this, right? So one of the areas that I think um, we've made huge strides in, in in AI over the last few years is natural language processing Um and um, to, to train, you know, your AI, the training data, um, you need huge amounts of communication, ideally written communication between people. Um, and there's a really interesting problem with that, which, which is that, you know, it's actually quite difficult to get terabytes, multiple terabytes of, of kind of communication between people. Um, and as a result of that, a very high proportion of natural language processing applications all have a single source um, and that is uh, the email and instant messaging system from uh, the company Enron. <laughs> um, it's a fascinating story, I think, because that that um, massive kind of communication system was all uploaded to the cloud as a result of the collapse, that catastrophic collapse of the company um, and the regulatory action that was taken about it. So what that means is that natural language practicing tends to have baked in it some of the features of Enron's um, kind of workforce. So far more men than women, a lot of um, a high proportion of men with toxic relationships with their subordinates and particularly women and so on. And so natural language processing too often learns that that's how humans can, should do interact, right? Uh, And so if you, um, just because it's readily available doesn't mean it's the best source, Um, but where, you know, I understand how that arises. And so I guess what this could do, the, the reform that you're talking about, is it could make readily available sources that are much more ethically um, kind of uh, interrogated um, and will hopefully not bake in those sorts of problems that like we've seen in the past. That's a really good example to explain it. Thank you. Finally, it would be really interesting to know from you what... You talked about the work you're doing around facial recognition and legislation in this space, and many cities around the world have already released legislation to manage this threat. What are you proposing in Australia, and what are the applications of facial recognition that you're concerned about? Interestingly, jurisdictions around the world can generally be divided into two in how they've 
responded to the rise of facial recognition. Category one, which is Australia <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and a bunch of others, have done nothing. They've just said, ah, oh, well, hopefully the existing law will be enough. Um, and it hasn't, and that's proven to be wrong. Category two is they've said, oh my gosh, this is terrible what's happening here. We're going to pass a moratorium on particular uses. We've seen, for example, most famously in San Francisco, the heart of Silicon Valley, where they've said, you know, we, we can't use facial recognition in policing because this is too dangerous. And so I, I, I respect um, that, that second category uh, because it's basically saying, stop. <laughs> um, and that's one of the most worrisome bits. But, but really what our law should do is two things, right? Like it should um, foster, encourage good innovation, and on the other hand, um, protect against the worst forms of harm. And that's really what we want our law to do. And there are very few laws actually now um, around the world that have tried to um, kind of wrestle with that balance. Uh, and um, the result is you've got some of, um, you know, the, the, the companies that are kind of most open to um, kind of participating in a normal regulatory system like Amazon and Microsoft and so on, who have all kind of said, well, we've got to pull back entirely from the use of facial recognition. And so the companies that have stepped into the breach are on the whole companies that are less respectful of uh, those sort of basic norms of, you know, fairness, equality and so on. The report that you've just published is from the Australian Human Rights Commission. It's titled the Human Rights and Technology Report. Human rights, it would seem, are a bit of an amorphous concept and sort of constantly added to and, and maybe walked back in, in certain very uh, rare circumstances where it's it's not abundantly clear what a human right is or where it should and shouldn't be applied. Is there is there a simply stated human right that is implied, you know, within this space that you've been able to distill out? I push back quite strongly on that because our international human rights law framework, which is the foundation of 95% of human rights laws around the world, is something that arose in the aftermath of the Second World War. And it's proven to be remarkably adaptable to a whole bunch of different sort of situations without being constantly tinkered with. Um, but the foundation of human rights is actually, it can be described in a sentence, it's quite profound, um, it is the protections that we all need to uphold our basic dignity. If you have that as the lodestar in the way in which you live your life, the way in which you regulate a community, all of those sorts of things, then you can usually answer most questions in a way that I think our citizens would want us to do. Edward, thank you very much for your time and for your work. We look forward to following the progress in the coming months. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.